I think far too often our our view of Jesus is narrowly limited to the the kind and gentle man who blessed the children, called on us to to love one another, forgive those who did us wrong, and just that sort of meek and, and lowly suffering servant who came. That or or that. And and to be sure, that's Jesus. And that is a, a part of Jesus we should always remember. But we forget the same Jesus who said and did these things also called the religious leaders of his day a brood of vipers. And he asked them how they would escape the damnation of hell. This same Jesus on two separate occasions was moved with a righteous anger. And he cleared the temple with whips by turning over the tables of the money changer, knocking down the animal pens and shouting for them to stop turning his father's house into a den of thieves. This same Jesus willingly endured a brutal beating and suffered a death on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins and the sins of the world. The same Jesus is described as one day returning on a white horse wearing a robe wet with the blood of his enemies. And this same Jesus will one day strike down the nations with a sword and will rule as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. The picture we need to have of Jesus is a complete picture of how He's revealed in Scripture. Not just one aspect or one part, but the complete picture we find of Him given in God's Word. I think particularly in the world in which we live now, as we are moving forward into an age in which Christianity is going to be less and less accepted, being a disciple of Jesus is less and less okay, being faithful to God's Word becomes more and more costly, I believe the picture of Jesus we especially need to have is the picture we find in the book of Revelation. So open your Bible, if you haven't already, to Revelation 5. We're going to look at the whole chapter. Uh, it's page 952 in your pew Bible. When you find that, I'm going to ask you to stand on the reading of God's Word. Revelation 5 and 1. And I saw on the right hand of Him that sat on the throne a book written on, written within and on the backside, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the book and to loose the seals thereof? And no man in heaven, nor on earth, nor under the earth, was able to open the book, neither to look thereon. And I wept much, because no man was found worthy to open and read the book, neither to look thereon. And one of the elders saith unto me, Weep not, behold, the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David hath prevailed to open the book, to loose the seven seals thereof. And I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne, and in the midst of the four beasts, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent forth into all the earth. And he came and he took the book out of the right hand of him who sat upon the throne. And when he had taken the book, the four beasts and the four and twenty elders fell down before the land, having every one of them harps and golden vials full of odors, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof. For Thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by Thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. 
and hast made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. And I beheld, and I heard the voice of many angels round about the throne, and the beasts, and the elders, and the number of them was ten thousand times ten thousand, and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them, I heard I saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be to him that sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb forever and ever. The four beasts said, Amen. The four and twenty elders fell down and worshipped him that liveth forever and ever. The title of the message this morning is Worthy is the Lamb. Let's pray. Father, we love you today. You are great and awesome. You are worthy of our praise, worthy of our devotion. Father, we come today with a desire to meet with you, a desire to let your word search us and try us, a desire to let your word be living and active, to cut away, be that sharp two-edged sword that would, that would cut away from us the cancer holding us back, keeping us from being pure and holy as you would have us to be. We come today with a desire for your word to be like a fire that would burn away the junk and the dross from our lives. So we would be pure vessels for you and we would shine in a dark and a dingy dying world. We come today with a desire for your word to be a hammer that would smash any strongholds we have built up in our minds so that our thoughts could be taken captive to the obedience of Christ. And we would think the way you would want us to think about everything. In our lives, we come today with a desire for your word to plow up the fallow ground of our hearts so the word would sink deep, deep in and it would bring forth good fruit for your glory in our lives. We come today so your word could be a mirror, help us to see what's really going on in our spiritual lives, to see ourselves as we are. So we could see what we need to do to be who we're supposed to be in our lives. We come today to better understand the greatness and the glory of our Savior. Father, help us in this. Let your spirit open our minds. We could receive the truth you have for us there. Let your spirit... Illuminate your word. Show us new things we didn't know about who Jesus is and what Jesus is like. Father, we ask not for this revelation so that we can say, golly, that's cool. We ask for this so we could better live for your glory. We could better live in a way that would demonstrate our lives truly are sold out. To the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And we are going to live with single minded obedience unto Him. Right now, knock down anything that would be distracting us and and let us be focused upon you, upon your word. Fill me with your spirit and give me clarity of thought and clarity of speech to be able to speak your words and your ways for your glory. I do not want to be a hindrance in any way. To what you once said today. Have your way in every one of our hearts. Do what you know needs to be done in our lives. Glorify yourself in this service. We ask in the mighty name of Christ our Savior. Amen. You may be seated.
And what we see in Revelation 5 is a continuation of what we looked at in Revelation 4. Right? Revelation 4, we have this picture of God on His throne. Revelation 5, we, we see a picture of Jesus. Now the picture of Jesus is meant to encourage Strengthen and inspire the original readers to to press on in their service and devotion to Jesus. To press on in their fight against the world, the flesh, and the devil as they seek to, to pull them into sin and to compromise. The theme of this chapter is the redemptive power and the great worthiness of Jesus Christ. So what happens is John is beholding this heavenly worship scene and as he looks at it, He notices in verse 1 a a scroll, or the King James says a book, in the hand of the one who's on the throne. And we don't really find out what the scroll is until chapter 6, but but it's important for us to know at this point it is it contains God's plan for for the ages. One of my commentaries called it the book of destiny. And, And overall, what this book has is God's story. And God's story can be... Broken up into four themes. There is creation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So there is that part and there's the the age of innocence as the people, as Adam and Eve, lived there in perfection and with communion with God. But then the second part, the second theme is the fall. And this is where the tempter comes in and convinces Adam and Eve to eat of the fruit which God had said they shall not eat. And they they died spiritually and they passed on sin and death unto all of their descendants. And in this time of the fall, God had promised a, a Redeemer. He promised a Messiah who would come and would crush the head of the serpent and, and fix all that went wrong. On that day, and and all of the Old Testament points to the day of the Messiah coming. And then when we get into the book of Matthew, we see redemption. The the Redeemer, the Messiah, comes. He comes in the person, Jesus Christ, who's born of a virgin and He lives a sinless life. And He dies a, a death He did not deserve. He dies to pay the penalty for our sins, to to make redemption possible. He's taken off the cross. He's put in the tomb. And after three days, He rises again. And, And we live right now in this time period, the time of redemption. The time when the gospel goes forth under the unction of the Holy Spirit. When people can hear and repent and turn to Jesus and be saved. But there is another day coming. There is a a completion is the fourth theme. And completion is what we see in the book of Revelation. It's God bringing history to a close. It is God finishing what began on the cross and making final redemption come to pass. The scroll which John sees, what's left of it, he sees that needs to be opened. He knows what needs to be opened is the completion of redemption. That's how it will unfold. Verse 2 through 4, we see there is a, a search through heaven made to find out who can open the scroll. Who can open it up and, and read what's there and, and cause what's there to, to come to pass. Now, in order for someone to be worthy to open this, I think there has to be at least two things would have to be true about them. I think on a basic level, they would have to be morally worthy. Because as the as we're going to see next week, as the seals are broken, God's judgment is loosed upon the earth. 
Well, one wicked person certainly is not worthy to loose judgment on other wicked people. So someone to open it would have to be better than people. And we see that the person who does it, the moral worth that has to be there, it is significant. Because you have the redeemed are here in the four and the twenty elders. We have the angels are here crying out to the Lord. And so in all of heaven, there are angels who have never sinned and they're not worthy. In all of heaven, there is the redeemed of God washed in the blood of the Lamb and they're not worthy. So there is a high level necessary for worthiness. And another aspect I think would have to be there would be power. In order to open the seal, to pronounce the judgment, the person who does so must be able to make sure it comes to pass. Well, no one was found in heaven, on earth, or under the earth. No one who had ever lived, no one who had ever died, no one who was currently there was worthy to open the scroll, to read the scroll, or even to look upon the scroll. And so John breaks down and weeps. Not just a a tear rolling down his cheek, but it says, I wept much. I think the picture we're meant to see is John breaks out into almost uncontrollable sobbing. John knows, or at least has an idea of what the scroll represents. He knows if the scroll is not opened, if what's in there does not come to pass, final redemption will never happen. All of creation, including humanity, was doomed to feel the effects of sin for all of eternity. No one worthy to open the scroll means no hope for anyone. And as John weeps, one of the elders tells him to weep not. Because there is one who is worthy. It's Jesus. Because of Jesus, there is hope. Because of Jesus, the completion of redemption will happen. Everything about the description of Jesus in this passage is significant. So what we're going to do is just look at the way Jesus is described in this chapter. And then see two ways we ought to respond to the Christ who is described in this chapter. And I don't have the descriptions up on the screen. We wouldn't have time to go through them all. So Jesus is first the line of the tribe of Judah. Behold, the line of the tribe of Judah, he's called. Now, this title for the Messiah has its roots in Genesis 49 Verse 9 and 10, when Jacob was giving his final prophecy over his sons. The image of the lion conveys a sense of power and majesty. It is one who is a a conqueror. Now, while this idea of, of a conqueror doesn't fit with Jesus we see in the Gospels, this idea is what we see throughout that from this point on, Jesus begins to conquer. He is the, the king of kings, the conquering king and heaven's warrior. He is the root of David. This is also a messianic title, has its roots in the Old Testament. It pictures Jesus' humanity and His deity. It pictures His humanity because it talks about Him coming from the line of David, which was a significant aspect of who the Messiah was supposed to be. 
But also, he's not just of the line of David, he is of the root of David, or he is the root of David. In other words, he is the root from which David sprang. He isn't merely a descendant of David, but he is also the reason David would exist and would come to the throne. He is the power behind David's throne. Jesus has prevailed, it says in verse 5. Jesus prevailing means he has conquered or he has overcome. One of my commentaries said a very literal translation of this word could be he carried off the victory. And there's four, five, six things Jesus has conquered. Jesus has conquered sin. But Jesus conquered sin in two ways. First, Jesus conquered sin by overcoming it in himself. Jesus was tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Jesus did what what Adam and Eve didn't do. Jesus did what none of us have ever done. Jesus did what no other person has ever done. Is He conquered sin by failing to give in to it. He was able to overcome it every single time it was presented to Him. Jesus also conquered sin through His death on the cross. By taking the punishment our sins deserve, Jesus made it possible for our sins to be forgiven and for us to be counted as righteous. Jesus has conquered sin by taking the punishment we deserved, our sin deserved. Jesus conquered death. While Jesus really did die on the cross, He really didn't stay dead long. In His death, He conquered sin and in His resurrection, He conquered death. Now thanks to His vicarious death in His victorious resurrection, death has been and will be swallowed up in victory. The day will come in which death no longer has a sting. Jesus has conquered this evil world. The tribulations we experience in this life do not steal our joy or quench our hope because Jesus has overcome. Jesus has said to us, in this world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Part of the reason Jesus died in our place was to deliver us from this present evil world, but not deliver us out of it so that we're not a part of it, but to deliver us from its influence. That we are able to live in a in the midst of a crooked and a perverse generation and we are to shine as lights in the midst of them. He has conquered this world and enables us to overcome it. And then Jesus has conquered Satan and all evil forces. Jesus' sacrificial death and victorious resurrection publicly defeated and humiliated all the spiritual powers of evil. He conquered them and is forever victorious. Satan is a defeated foe and he is right now roaring about seeking whom he may devour. But he has no power over us as disciples of Jesus. We are free From his influence, we are free from his power. We are under the protection of our good shepherd who has a rod and staff to fight off the thieves that come to steal, kill, and destroy. Those who embrace Jesus' sacrifice, they become victors along with Jesus. Jesus has prevailed. And now he and he alone is worthy to open the scrolls and open its seals. Verse 6 and 7, the the images change a bit, but they're still powerful and important. We see in verse 6, Jesus is the center of everything. He is in the midst of the throne, and in the midst of the beast, in the midst of the elders. 
Right? The idea of Jesus being in the midst is, is he is in the center of it all. All eyes are on him. Jesus is the focus of everyone's attention. Now and for all of eternity, everything will focus on Jesus. He is the very center and focus of it all. Everything rises and falls on Jesus. This is why the Apostle John would write, those who have the Son have life and those who do not have the Son do not have life. The most critical question for any of us to ask and answer is the question Jesus asked of His disciples in Matthew 16. Who do you say that I am? Who do you say Jesus is? Your answer to that question is eternally significant because Jesus is the center of everything. And as the center of everything, He is He and He alone is worthy to open the scroll. Jesus is the Lamb of God. He was the Lion in verse 5. Now He's the Lamb in verse 6. But the Lamb is a harkens back into what John the Baptist called Jesus. One of his first testimonies about Jesus is, Behold, the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. This is who Jesus is. This is what Jesus did. But notice the way the Lamb looks. First, notice the Lamb looks as though He were dead. Right? Stood a Lamb as if it had been slain. The marks of the cross. The marks of the thorns, the marks of the the, the beating Jesus took are still visible. When we see Jesus in eternity, the marks of the cross will still be there. They will always be there. This is one of the reasons no one will glory in heaven in the presence of Jesus. In heaven, we're not going to be like, look at what I went through. Look at what I endured. Look at what I did. Instead, we will see the Lamb who looks as though He's been slain. And we will see the marks of the cross, the marks of the thorns. And we will know it's what He did. This is what matters most. And though the Lamb looks like it's been slain, the Lamb is standing. And this is significant because dead things don't stand. Jesus is standing because Jesus is alive. Jesus was just a guy taught some things, did some things, and then died. He would not be any more significant than any other religious leader who has ever lived. What makes Jesus significant is His resurrection and the fact that He lives forevermore. As it says in the end, He lives forever and ever. Jesus is the Lamb of God. So He and He alone is worthy to open the scroll and open its seals. Jesus is Lord. It says he has seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. Now, I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, I'm not a big fan of symbolism, but in the Revelation, you have to deal with it because it's seen all throughout. And throughout the book of Revelation, number seven almost always seems to realize or indicate that the fullness or the full measure of something horns in the Bible often indicate or they symbolize power or strength. Or the rule. So like later there will be lambs that have horns and they will give their power to another. Right? So the horns, or in, in the book in the Old Testament, David refers to God as the, the horn of his salvation, the strength of his salvation. The seven eyes here refer to the seven spirits of God, and it says they sent forth into all the earth. 
And the connection of eyes to spirits to all the earth seems to indicate the the knowledge Jesus has of everything going on in the earth. So the picture is the lamb who was slain and yet stands. He has all power, all sovereignty, all lordship, and he has all knowledge. Jesus has all knowledge about what will happen as he breaks the seals and opens the scrolls. Jesus has all power to break the seals and to make what's written in the scrolls come to pass. Jesus is Lord. And because Jesus is Lord, He is worthy and He alone is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals. And then Jesus is active and not passive. Jesus demonstrates His worthiness. He walks up and He takes the scroll out of the hand, the one sitting on the throne. Chapter 6, we'll see Jesus open the scroll, open the seals, and thus release the judgments contained of the scroll. He is worthy of doing this. He has prevailed to do this. He has the power to do this. He has the knowledge to do this. He will do this. Jesus will finish the redemption He started at His death and resurrection. Now this picture of Jesus is pretty powerful. A Jesus who is all of these things demands... We respond in some way. While there are many ways we could look at, there are two we see in this passage specifically. First, we worship Jesus. Jesus takes the scroll in verse 7 and in verse 8, another heavenly worship scene breaks out. And everybody in heaven and on earth and under the earth kind of gets in on worshiping Jesus At this point, as we look at this, there are four four ways we should worship Jesus, who is worthy to open the scroll and open its seals. Worship reverently. Verse eight. When they begin to worship, they fall down on their faces. And they fall before him. This is a an element of of reverence. They are he alone is worthy. He alone deserves the worship. By falling on their face, they're saying, they just want everyone to know it's just about Him. We're we're not a part of this at all. I, I deeply believe reverence is important in our worship and our service of Jesus. We live in an irreverent age, particularly as it comes to the things of God. And while the world is irreverent and there's nothing we can do about that, we ought not be. Something that ought to separate us from an ungodly, irreverent world is our reverence for God. However, reverence for Jesus can be, and often is, I believe, misunderstood. Reverence isn't being sad. right? Joy is is not irreverent while sad is reverent. Reverence isn't slower music. Slow music isn't reverent, while fast music is irreverence. Reverence has nothing to do with either of those things. Reverence is the attitude of our hearts. It is recognizing the greatness and the worthiness of Jesus, the one we are worshiping. Reverence is a, an attitude of profound love, respect, and awe toward the one we are worshiping. We should worship 
Jesus reverently. We should worship Jesus accurately. Worship can be emotional. And worship certainly involves our emotions. But but it's more than our feelings. It's more than what we feel. It's more than our emotions. As we worship Jesus, we should not only feel something, we should think something. As you look throughout this chapter, notice how they worship Jesus. But the things they say, they are all based upon who we already know Jesus is. What we already know Jesus has done. The the words of their songs are extolling Jesus. They're not making up what He's like. He is worthy. He has redeemed us. He has brought us from every tongue and people and kindred and nation. He is worthy to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength. But all that they're saying is is accurate about who Jesus is. As they declare His worth, it's accurate. It's biblically accurate as to who Jesus is. This, I believe, is so important. Now these truths... They should evoke an emotional response in us because of what He's done for us. But the emotion can't be the driving force. The truth has to be. And and again, in in our day, this isn't always the case. We, I, I said we've got to ask, who do I say Jesus is? We do. But we don't get to ask, who is Jesus? Right? Jesus is who he's already been defined as. He, he is as Scripture has defined him. I, I heard a teaching and, and it was by the lady doing it. was a part of a very popular worship group. If I were to say the name, you would know it. And she was teaching people about worship. She said, what we got to ask is, who is Jesus to you? And to her, Jesus was like the genie in Aladdin. He was silly and funny. What nonsense. What utter, blathering nonsense. We don't get to pick what Jesus is like to us. He is. We worship Jesus accurately. We worship Jesus gratefully. We we don't see this explicitly in this passage. But you think about what they accurately talk about, who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. That should, that should motivate an, an attitude of gratitude from us, shouldn't it? He has redeemed us to God from every kindred and tongue and nation. He has made us to our God kings and priests. He has overcome on our behalf. I mean, all of these things. When we think about Jesus has done this for me, I mean, gratitude is the only, the only response I can think of. Well, not the only one, but it's a main one. We should be grateful. It should, even when we're singing songs that aren't necessarily thank you, Lord. There should be gratitude in our hearts for what Jesus has done for us. And then finally, worship enthusiastically. I, w- I was torn how to describe what I meant here. You know, joyfully, passionately, excitedly. But what I want to convey here. Is they're not listlessly going through the motions of worship. They aren't half-hearted. They aren't 
partially engaged. They aren't sluggish in their worship. Jesus has prevailed to take the scroll and loose the seals thereof. Jesus has redeemed them to God from every kindred and tongue and people and nation. Jesus is going to bring history to a close and complete the redemption He began on the cross. He will usher in the final completion of redemption. And as they worship Him for going to do that, they are all in in this worship. Verse 12, it says they worship with a loud voice. There is no way they are anything but... but Passionate, joyful, excited, or enthusiastic. Now we don't see this unfold as they are. We're not physically there as they are. But we are worshiping the same Jesus they are. We are worshiping the same Jesus who will do this. Who has redeemed us. Who has made us kings and priests to our God. Who begun to deliver us from the power of sin and will one day deliver us fully from the very presence of sin. We should be every bit as excited, every bit as passionate, every bit as joyful, every bit as enthusiastic in our worship, in our day as they are in this scene. The original English word for worship was two words, worth-ship. And what we... Worshipped declared the worth of what we were worshiping. Is Jesus worth our being excited? Is Jesus worth our being enthusiastic? Is Jesus worth our being joyful? If He is, then our worship should declare this worth. We worship Jesus because He and He alone is worthy. To take the scroll and loose the seals thereof. And then secondly, we give our lives to tell everyone we can about Jesus. Verse 9, they sung a new song saying, Thou art worthy to take the book, to open the seals. For Thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by Thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. The Lamb who was slain was slain for all. In heaven there will be people from every tribe. Some translations say tribe instead of kindred. Tribe and tongue and people and nation. If you were here Wednesday night, every people group. Jesus was slain for them. And Jesus is going to redeem people from all of those. How many? We'll look at chapter 7 and verse 9. After this I beheld and lo a great multitude which no man could number. Of all nations and kindreds and people and tongues stood before the throne, before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palms in their hands. Not just one or two, but a great multitude which no one can number. Here's a great thought for us. There is this heavenly worship scene coming. This great day. In which all of the redeemed from all the generations will gather before the throne and give Jesus the glory He deserves. 
And they will be from every language and tribe and nation and tongue and people group that is or ever has been. And there will be multitudes which no one could number. And we're a part of that worship scene. How awesome is that? But more than that, we're invited to be a part of helping that great multitude form. We're invited to be a part of helping this great multitude gather together to become the redeemed of God, to be redeemed through His blood. This is a part of the reason we're here. If being a a Christian was just we, we surrender our lives to Christ and then we wait to go to heaven, Jesus would kill us all the moment we get saved and He would take us to heaven if that was the whole point. But He doesn't. He leaves us here. For what point? For what purpose? Why do we stay? Why are you and I alive today as the redeemed disciples of Jesus? So that we can help people be redeemed to God through the blood of Jesus out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. This is our purpose. This is why we're here. This is why this church exists. This is why we were saved. This is why we're a part The church of Jesus Christ. But this requires us to tell people. Whoso shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. How then shall they call upon him in whom they have not believed? How shall they believe in him whom they have not heard? How shall they hear without a preacher? Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That is certain. But. To call on Jesus, they have to believe in Jesus. And to believe in Jesus, they have to hear about Jesus. And so what this means is, no one will call on Jesus if they don't believe in Jesus. And no one can believe in Jesus if they've never heard of Jesus. And no one will hear about Jesus unless somebody tells them. If we won't tell people, who will? Who is the other person who will go to the people in our community and talk to them about Jesus? Who is going to go to your neighbors and mine if you and I won't? Who is going to go to our family members if you and I won't? Who is going to go to our co-workers if you and I won't? Who is going to go to the people we know if you and I won't? The reality is probably no one. And so you have a, a tragedy. People will live in a community with 13 or so Bible-believing, Jesus-preaching churches. And they will never hear a gospel message. No one will ever tell them about Jesus. Now, we, we today, we tend to think, if you're my age or older, you tend to think everybody already knows. That's not the world we live in anymore. We don't live in a world where everybody in Guyman, Oklahoma, has heard a clear gospel message. We don't live in a world where everybody in Guyman, Oklahoma knows that since we're open, they're welcome to come. 
That, that world may have existed in the 70s, but it's been dead a long, long time. And that world, it ain't ever coming back. The only way they're going to hear and believe and call on Jesus is if someone tells them. And if you and I won't, then they will tragically die and go to hell in a town filled with people professing faith and love to Jesus. People who say He is worthy. God help us. God help us. And with this we have to understand. We're not telling someone about a politician. If I were a meddling preacher, which I'm not, but if I was... I would say, God help us, we're more prone to tell people about politicians than we are about Jesus. But I I won't say that. We aren't telling people about an author or an actor or a musician. We're telling them about the line of the tribe of Judah. The root of David who has prevailed to open the book. The one who has died on the cross for our sins. Who has redeemed us to God by His blood. And He wants to save people from every kindred and tongue and people and nation. But to ensure everyone hears about Jesus, it requires us to give our lives. Give our lives to tell people about Jesus. I'll close with a story. You may have told it before. It's one of my favorite stories. Years ago, there was a Christian community in Hernhut, Germany. Moravians. And they were together, but they weren't really active. Two young men from the Moravian community heard of an island in the West Indies where an atheist British owner had two to three thousand slaves. And the owner had said, no preacher, no clergyman. Will ever stay on this island. If he's shipwrecked, keep him in a separate house till he has to leave. But he's never going to talk to any of us about God. I'm through with all of this nonsense. These two men were so burdened by this, they sold themselves into slavery. So they could go live among the slaves. Tell them about Jesus. Can you imagine? Sold themselves into slavery. One story had to use the money to buy their own ticket there. So they literally had nothing. Their families came to the docks to bid them farewell because they knew they would likely never see them again because they sold themselves to lifetime servitude. And as the ship pulled out of the harbor, the young men linked arms, raised their hands and shouted to their families, May the lamb that was slain Receive the reward of his suffering. This cry became, this became the cry of Morovian missions. Changed the church. They started a 24 hour, seven day a week prayer service that lasted for over a hundred years. For that hundred years, they tithed 10% of their people to world missions. Their missionaries went everywhere. There are Morovian mission places in America because they left 
and went to the ends of the earth. To such an extent, one group was going to Greenland and the ship sank and they all died. And months later when the word came, what do you think they did? They volunteered three or four more who signed up, sold their stuff, got on another ship to go to Greenland because that's where they were supposed to go. They sent their young men and their young women and they died badly, many of them. They established mission churches, others, who also tithed people. It was at that time the greatest missions agency the world has ever known. And it was just a local church who determined they would give their lives to make sure the lamb who was slain received the reward of his suffering. May their cry be our cry. May we be determined that through our lives the lamb who was slain would receive the reward of our suffering. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you today. You are great and awesome. You are worthy of our praise and worthy of our devotion. Father, we need you today to work in our lives to help us. The world, the world pushes complacency. The world pushes lukewarmness when it comes to the mission. Making disciples of all nations. Our flesh, our flesh is all in on that. Our flesh tells us someone else will do it. Someone else can go. I'm not a good speaker. I don't know enough. I can't possibly. It's not my business. I don't feel called. The devil makes us afraid. The devil puts forth an idea that trying to reach people for Jesus is hate speech. That we ought to just mind our own business and be by ourselves and keep it to ourselves. We know these things are not from you. Deep in our hearts, we know these things are not from you. Kill those things within us that make us fearful, that make us lukewarm, that make us complacent. Kill those things within us that make us A people who give excuses rather than a people who share the gospel. Let us recognize the great worth of Jesus. And give our lives to ensure the lamb who was slain receives the reward of his suffering so much as lies within us. We ask this in Jesus name and for his sake. Amen.